Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Today we're uncovering another favourite episode from the Travel Diaries archive now that we have over 100 episodes to pick from as we build up to our big season finale with Joanna Lumley next week. It was so hard to choose but when I reflected on the episodes that sparked the most wanderlust in me from the most seasoned travellers I thought it had to be Ben Fogel this week. Ben's episode was recorded back in the COVID days during season three when no one really knew what was going on with the future of travel and his tales of epic physical feats, wilderness living, going to the most remote parts of the planet really inspired me. So let's hear a bit more about him now. Ben is not only an award-winning broadcaster fronting many of our most loved TV shows, He is also one of the UK's most prolific adventurers. He has rowed across the Atlantic Ocean, swam from Alcatraz to San Francisco, run the Marathon des Sables, a six-day ultra-marathon across the Sahara Desert, raced across Antarctica to the South Pole, and most recently climbed Mount Everest. (sighs) It makes me exhausted just thinking about it. He's written nine best-selling books, many about travel, and has the enviable title of the United Nations Patron of the Wilderness. And speaking of the wilderness, he's traveled to every corner of the globe while filming his long-running hit TV series, New Lives in the Wild, a notion that feels particularly relevant right now and one that we'll discuss on today's episode. And while Ben himself doesn't live in the wild, he does live in a house that's off-grid without broadband. So this was a truly remote, remote recording and means the sound is maybe a little less crisp than the rest of the season coming up. So are you ready to be transported to Guatemala, Ethiopia, Bolivia, the top of Mount Everest, the Canadian wilderness and Ayanapa? Here are the travel diaries of Ben Fogel. Ben, welcome to The Travel Diaries. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. It's it's a rather strange time, isn't it, for, for people who travel, having had such a long period of non-travel. So I think it's actually rather apt that this is the perfect kind of time to reflect and to revisit places in our minds and words and in podcasts, uh, I, I think that's mm. that's what I've used this period of lockdown for to to sort of reminisce, reflect something that I don't usually have have time to do. Yes, because your life and work is travel. It is so deeply connected to travel, and now you've been locked down for months, unable to travel. So, how has that been for you? Well, I don't want to be insensitive to those who have struggled with lo- lockdown and and the economic and health impact that's had, but. Actually, it's been incredible for me. For, for the last 20 years, I have never had more than one consecutive week uh, at home. So suddenly to have had, in my case, it's almost been uh, 12 weeks, I think, maybe even a little, little longer with my family in our home, not leaving the perimeter, 
has been has actually been a really valuable lesson for me. I think, mm-hmm. believe it or not, I might be one of the first guests you've you've had on here who actually might conclude that maybe I've travelled a bit too much. Uh, and when I say that, to, to try and explain why, I think I think too much of anything isn't necessarily a good thing because it doesn't give you it doesn't really give you the opportunity to really enjoy and maximize what you have and and I think I think this period at home with my family has has given me the opportunity of not only really getting to know them which I know sounds a bit strange but this is the longest time I've ever spent with my wife consecutively and certainly with my own children and that's all because of the travel which is my oxygen my passion my work my life um, I, I I really consider myself a journeyman and a journeyman yeah. rarely stops but I've suddenly had that opportunity and it's, it's it's been rather magical. Oh that's lovely it's so nice to hear the positive stories from this time and as you say a gift of an opportunity to get to spend that time with your family So for years, we watched you document the experiences in different kinds of isolation in far-flung places on your TV series, New Lives in the Wild, some who are completely self-sufficient. Has the pandemic given you an even greater appreciation for their way of life, would you say? It has. You know what's really strange, Holly, is that uh, 20 years ago this year was where I kind of really started my career when I was marooned on an island for a year. It was one of the early sort of reality shows. And the idea was that a group of volunteers were sent to live for a whole year. This is what a lot of people forget. It was actually 13 months on and up in the Outer Hebrides. And it, it was much more than a game show. It wasn't really a reality show, although it, I suppose it was... Um, in TV terms, but it, it was about self-sufficiency. It was about creating an off-grid life, being less dependent on the outside world, being more resourceful. And after that year, I always it, it gave me it gave me actually a, a huge amount of confidence. It empowered me because I always thought, in the event of a zombie apocalypse uh, <laughs> or um, a global pandemic, mm. that where I would go for my isolation. I'd scoop up my family. We would go at um, at top speed all the way up to Scotland and we would then decamp to an island where I would use all those skills and of course now I'm talking to you 12 weeks later from my, uh, my, my uh, very civilized home in Oxfordshire where I, I live with my family uh, and I'm not there I'm kind of isolated from the isolation so there's a great irony really that I always yeah. thought that that's how I'd live and did you consider actually trying to get up to Tarrancey did you consider going yes but it would do you know what I didn't have the materials that you would need you know that when reality hits when reality bites you you actually suddenly realize your fallibilities and your vulnerabilities so although I'm perfectly happy um and safe in the knowledge that I could build some, you know, shelter for my family and I could grow all the crops. You still need the basic materials to get that going. And, and we just didn't have, you know, it, it wasn't going to happen. And as we have seen, you know, uh, visitors were suddenly not really welcome in those far away remote communities. And I get that. It probably wouldn't have gone down a Southern family suddenly turning up. So I, I, I think actually it, it was probably sensible that we, we didn't do that. Yeah, that makes but of sense. Course, 
have tried to create an element of that here in, in Oxfordshire. So half the garden has been turned over to a veg patch, which I've been kind of itching for an excuse to do. So we're now growing a huge amount of our own produce and we've severed ourselves from the grid here. We've got um, uh, heat exchange systems. We've got solar panels. So we're, we're, we're trying to be a little bit off grid in a, a kind of built up um, civilized part of the country. Amazing. Okay, let's get started with your travel diaries, kicking off with chapter one, which is your earliest childhood travel memory. That would have to be Canada. So I'm actually half Canadian. I know it doesn't sound it, but I can put on a, a Canadian accent if, if you want. <laughs> I don't spend a huge amount of time there, so I'll stick with my English one. <laughs> Dad is a fully, fully paid up plaid shirt wearing, moose lamp uh, owning, Canadian canoe uh, paddling uh canadian he wears the maple leaf anyone that's been to canada and has met canadians traveling will know they always have the maple leaf flag on their rucksack (laughs) they wear a little lapel badge just in case they get mistaken for an american which is (laughs) the worst sin you can ever ever make to to think that a canadian might possibly be uh their, their southerly neighbors but no so so canada was a big part of my childhood. I, I, my sisters and I would go there every single summer for the full eight, nine weeks where, where we'd spend time at grandma and grandpa's cottage on a lake. It was the quintessential kind of Canadiana. It, it was a hand-built cottage that grandpa had built himself. Where in Canada was that? It was in Ontario, mm-hmm. uh, just outside, about, just outside, about two hours um, southwest of Toronto in a, a lake region called the Coauthors. And it was a, a specific lake called Lake Chamon, and I loved Lake Chamon. It, it was, it, it was my happiest place. I cried for days when it was time to return home because the the flip side of that was that I grew up in central London, and when I say central London, I could see Marble Arch from my bedroom window. The nearest kind of green space was Hyde Park, which was my kind of my access to to the wilderness, or the, as much as close to that as as I was going to get. So Canada really was escapism, and it was all swimming, canoeing, fishing, building dens, going camping, exploring, and I loved it. I I can't tell you how much I loved Canada. It still brings me great nostalgia just to think about it. There are smells that take me back there. And uh, it was a huge part of of who who I am. Mm. And did that spark your love and interest in the wilderness? I think so. I mean, it wasn't wilderness in the in the kind of contemporary sense. It, you know, there, there were lots of very civilized. I keep using this word. There were there were, there were, there were lots of very comfortable cottages uh, on the lake. Like I say, it was all it, it was quite rustic um, how we lived there. That, um, uh, but I, 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 again, it, it was just a place that gave me great comfort and and as we grew a little bit older dad started taking us exploring he wanted us to know Canada so we did the quintessential tour of the west coast in an RV a recreational vehicle uh Mm -hmm. dad took some colossus sort of 50 meter monster I'm obviously exaggerating there but it really didn't (laughs) like that at the time couldn't couldn't get into any city or town centers always had to park it in parking lots because it was too big it was too big for most of the camping sites but it had showers and bunk beds and it was amazing and as soon as I started exploring western Canada so kind of British Columbia and Vancouver um, I think that's when my 
I suppose my horizons started to grow, that there was more than just London and Lake Chamon when it came to, to travel. And then we'd, we'd start traveling around Ontario to, um, to Algonquin Park. Again, some of your listeners who know Canada will know this is a great wilderness where they, they really limit the number of people in there. We'd go camping in canoes, portaging where you carry it between lakes and watching moose and beaver and diving for freshwater clams, and it really, it, 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 it was magical. And, and I love that momentum of travel. And I think that's where, that's probably where the seed of travel was really formed. Mm, you're so right about momentum. When people say travel is escapism, I actually think it's more about contrast in a way. Was that the same for you? I think contrast is really important. I think we all want contrast. I think if you live in a wild urban place to suddenly go to the middle of New York or at the centre of Paris is a great, exciting experience because it's different. And, and I think mm-hmm. travel is all about um, embracing what you don't normally have. And, uh, and, and for me, that's what, that is what kind of Canada and the wilderness has always done, growing up in such a gritty urban place. You know, it was the height of the IRA troubles. There were bombs on the streets. There were police cars closing roads. It was kind of, I mean, again, I don't want to sound glib. It was kind of exciting, but it was really urban and gritty. You know, our dogs, Mm. uh, dad's a vet. I grew up above his veterinary clinic and to walk the dogs, we'd walk them in the gutter and they'd squat down behind cars and they'd get exhaust pipe fumes on the back of their fur and and I'm giving you that example because I just want to reiterate just how urban my upbringing was and then suddenly to be in Algonquin Park was like going on to Mars and and I just loved it and I've always thought and I think my travel um, diaries all the way up to where I am now have led me to believe that's where we belong not really in urban areas we 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 have a great affinity and connection with the natural world it's it's a much more honest lifestyle and and I think that honesty appealed to me from a very early age so from life's lessons to life's loves chapter two is the first place you fell in love with I think well it's a pretty big region it's Latin America um, it's, so we're just picking a tiny little corner of the world. Yeah. But it was, I was 19. I had just failed all my A-levels. Actually, I didn't know, if, actually, if I'm to be honest, I didn't know I had failed them yet. It was that little period just after you've taken the A-levels. I had a sense that, that it wasn't, it hadn't gone well. But I was in that honeymoon period and, and I went for my gap year, and, uh, which turned into two, by the way. And Latin America for me, was the great unknown. I'd always loved geography. I, I, I did a lot of kind of finger traveling, open up a map, a map an atlas, uh, and I would just kind of wander around the world. And Latin America was this huge area I knew nothing about. The places were largely alien to me. I'd hardly heard of the capital cities. Uh, and if you think about it, it's it's a symptom of our geography. So if you live in America, North America, that is, um, then obviously you hear a great deal about uh, South America. But for us, we we tend in Great Britain, we'd hear quite a lot about um, the, the 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 continent of Africa being our closest large, um, exciting continent beyond Europe. Uh, yeah. South America was this mystery. So when it came, when I got the opportunity to travel, I literally opened up an atlas, stuck my finger down, and it landed on Ecuador. Never even heard of Ecuador. Quito, the capital. And I thought, 
that's where I'm going to go. So I, I worked wow. how I could get there, what I would do. I ended up finding a placement where I'd live with a family and teach in a school. And, and, I, I, and I obviously kind of incorporated that with a great journey from Brazil up the Amazon through Peru, Bolivia, doing all the kind of typical gap year, gap year things, uh, going mm-hmm. to Machu Picchu and um, uh, up the Amazon and to uh, um, Lake Titicaca, all of those things, and I just loved it. I mean, honestly, I when I say I loved it, that's an under—that's an understatement. It was the most exciting continent, and I know it's—I I don't want to kind of use big brush strokes when we talk about areas or regions or countries, but Latin America as a whole just filled me with so much excitement the smells the colors the riches the people the history the literature everything was amazing and i found myself immersing myself in every every gabriel garcia marquez book and isabella allende and i just want i couldn't get enough of it and i actually ended up studying a degree in latin american studies oh really it gave me it gave me an even better understanding of this exciting region and for people who haven't visited Latin America, myself included, where would you say would be a good starting point to get their first flavour of the region as a whole? Well, I think if, if we then break Latin America up into kind of Central and South, I think if you're going to go to Central America, Guatemala is just an amazing amazing place full of the cultures that you want and the riches and the landscape and the beauty there's a place called Antigua Mm. which is where a lot of foreigners go you can go and learn Spanish there it's um, overlooked by a big smoldering volcano it's the quintessential if you're going to make a film and a lot of films have been made in that region but that's where you would probably want to go so I'd say Guatemala obviously you'd always have to check with the FCO um, about um, the, the current state of um, safety and uh, the politics there. It's, it's quite a vulnerable region, full stop. But um, I think Guatemala for Central America and yeah. South America, I'd go for Bolivia. Um, I was actually, I returned there last year for the first time in quite quite a period and I it, it didn't disappoint. I found it so exciting um, that the, the the variety of landscapes that you've got there from Salar to Uni, these big salt flats. You've got um, access to the Amazon region. You've got the high Andes. You've got the um, the indigenous culture. And you've got the high lakes of uh, like Lake Titicaca. And for me, I, I just think that those are two very, very exciting regions. Wow, what a great recommendation. It sounds like a condensed version of the best bits of South America in one country. And it's a nice contrast, actually, to the typical recommendations of Brazil, Argentina. So with that in mind, lots of itineraries try and cover the full region, vast region. But like Bolivia, each country has so much to offer. Absolutely. And, and you know, my advice to travellers who are looking to, to explore different areas is don't necessarily do what I do, which is to try and see everything and every single bit, because actually what, you, what, what, what I've discovered after nearly three decades of travelling now is that actually I find myself revisiting places just so that I can properly understand them and properly reach all the corners. I think it's mm-hmm. if, if you spray yourself too thin with the travel and you want to go to multiple places and hit all those big tourist points actually it's to the detriment of really getting to know a region and there's no better way to get to know a region by the way than the people i'm a big people traveler i feel Mm -hmm. a lot of modern travel misses the point but actually you'll never ever have a better 
better travel experience than if you are with some locals somehow, whether they're guides, whether they're friends, whether they're people that you're living with, staying with, eating with. Um, it's easily the best way to really get to know a place, a region, a country. It's the people that make the place. Oh, for, for sure. I, I think it took me a long time to reach that point. I think I, I was very literal with my travel in the early stages that it was all about going to Anchor Watts or it was all about going to um, uh, Machu Picchu or, or, or to the, the pyramids. It, it was about going to wonder. Taking places off. Yeah, it, that, that, that was my assumption. And, and of course, you want to see those regions, but actually you get a much, much better travel experience if you are actually with locals. And, and those experiences where, which has, have happened serendipitously, accidentally or proactively where I've been with locals have inevitably been my favourite travel experiences. Mm. And I've read that you visited more than 100 islands. Is that right? I've become a bit of an island fanatic. It, it, <laughs> My year on Taransay for the castaway experiment. I think my mm. first island experience was when I was about eight years old and I went to the island of Rum in the Inner Hebrides. And, and I think from oh, there, yeah. I've just become fascinated, really fascinated. And I'm not, it, it probably sounds to lots of your listeners who might not know about um, all of my travel, it might sound like a lot of it is box ticking, but it's not. So when I say 100 islands, it's not like I have earmarked off island after island I want to go to, but they really fascinate me. And, and a lot of them have been very hard to get to. Islands like Pitcairn and Tristan de Kuna and St. Helena. They're the islands yeah. that really, really excite me. The Falkland Islands, I've been lucky enough to go out there a number of times. And I, I love the fact that they're kind of microcosms of the, the wider society. Everything is magnified and you, you get almost a richer experience when you go to an island. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers? 
just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. So Pitcairn Island I was particularly interested in. It's in the South Pacific. And am I right in thinking it's the least populated territory in the world? Well, there's there's 36 uh, islanders who live there. It was, it was settled by the mutineers from the bounty after they cast Captain Bly adrift um, several hundred years ago. They needed to find somewhere where they would settle. So they're all the descendants of, of um, Christian Fletcher and his team of mutineers. There's no airports. There's no boat service. Uh, I, when I got there, um, I went about... 19 years ago, I, I found a Frenchman um, who had a sailboat called the Sauvage, and he and I sailed for seven, eight days across the Southern Ocean. Terrifying journey, uh, just the two of us. And actually, when we got there, I didn't have the correct paperwork. I got arrested and deported after about an hour. So it oh, was. No, actually- so it wasn't that much of an in depth experience then? No, it wasn't an in depth experience, but it gave me. Uh, I've still got a fascination for that island and and actually I'd like to return one day. I need to give myself a huge amount of time to to get back there. And it's actually one of the places that has disappointed me the most in terms of not being able to to get there, leaving me with a slight bitter taste on on how I was treated. But I get it. It's, It's an island that is very much a reflection, I suppose, of its history. And if you do have the right paperwork, is it a place that is now any easier for tourists to get to or is it still a long sailing trip to reach it? Well, you can, I know a couple of the cruise ships that do the southern, um, uh, the South Pacific do stop off there. Uh, whether, whether How many people can get ashore, I, I'm not entirely sure right now uh so it is still a very difficult place but if you are on the right journey and on the right boat you can still get there but certainly there's no regular easy way to get there i I would probably still mark it off as one of uh the more complex places to get to i've I've got a handful of places when people say what are the most difficult places to get to which are the kind Mm. of most the most precious in terms of just how complex it is um pitcairn would be up there with um with with some of the more remote places what would some of the others be i think um uh, siberia what i don't think i've ever tried it took four days of travel endless airplanes endless waiting i i was right up in the northeast corner very very close to alaska actually i was probably about 150 miles as the crow flies from Alaska, which is pretty extraordinary. And arguably, it would have been easier had I gone through North America. But obviously, you can't cross the line from that direction. So I had to travel the other way. And honestly, this place, I actually went to this place called the Pleistocene Park, one of the most exciting places. This is a group of of Russian scientists who are trying to bring back the woolly mammoth long story. I don't think we've got time to go into it, but they have created the most astonishing sort of prehistoric park in one of the most isolated places I've ever been. So that would be another one. Uh, Papua New Guinea, 
you can obviously get to it relatively easily in terms of getting to Port Moresby, but once you then want to venture further afield, um, it, it becomes a little bit more complex. East Timor, another place that's pretty exciting. But yeah, I think I think a, a number of those regions would uh, be included in my not easy to get to uh, black book. Well, because of because of the, the kind of preciousness of filming, so the, the new lives in the wild, we we usually have about two and a half weeks or so to get there, film and get out, which might sound like a long time, but it's really not, especially when you've got three or four days of travel just to get to the place, which is mm-hmm. often the case. Because even if we're filming in a relatively easily accessible place like Thailand, for example, it's then often another forty-eight hour journey just to get to the remote part. So. When we, when as soon as the plane lands or the train arrives or the the minibus we're on or the four by four reaches our place, we start rolling. There's no, there's no buffer zone, and uh, mm-hmm. I just get on with it. I think I've done it so much. I I probably travel or travelled uh, nine months of each year. Mm-hmm. Goodness knows how much of that is spent in the travelling part. Uh, as in, you know, on the journey to get to the region, um, probably the majority, to be honest. And I am, I'm pretty good with my own company. I read a lot. Um, I, I do a lot of writing while I'm on the road. Um, I mm-hmm. chat a lot. I look a lot. I take photos. So I do. I just take traveling in my stride. When when I see that I've got a five-day journey ahead of me, um, that's, you know, a, another pretty complex region to get to is is northeastern Amazonia and and I I went there last year and that that included a 48-hour non-stop boat journey Uh, so when you have those I don't kind of roll my eyes and and, and think oh no because the journey is part of the travel isn't it really I suppose it's uh, the the old cliched saying that the um, destination uh, it's not all about the destination um, the, the the journey is um, is a part of what you were you know experiencing. I still can't get over nine months of traveling. Wow! With all your reading, writing, photography, you obviously learn a lot when on the road. So that leads me on to chapter three, which is the trip where you learn the most about yourself. Blimey! Well, the pl- I mean that's probably the Atlantic Ocean. It's not really a place, is it? It's a it's it's a vast part of the planet. But I, I rode across it uh, 15 years ago with my friend, the Olympic rower James Cracknell. We were in a tiny little rowing boat, 23 feet long, and that was the period of growth that changed me as a person. I learned about boredom. I learned about tolerance. I learned about pain, suffering, fear all of those things we were we really were alone on that huge ocean in this tiny little boat and and i think i learned a lot about um just confronting a lot of fears that perhaps we 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 try to shield ourselves from and those fears are you know everything from failure to um uh, hunger to um sorrow to the the emotions of missing people all of those things were were um, part of that that extraordinary experience. We were at sea for forty nine days, uh, and and I, I think it was a time and a place. I think if I did it again, it wouldn't be quite such a, a good tutor or 
um, teacher. Uh, I think it was exactly the right time in my life when when I needed to learn those lessons. I had it, I had started in the public eye. I was a very, very minor celebrity. Some would argue I still am, um, <laughs> but I was, you know, I, I really was, you know, the, the the posh bloke who'd been on a reality show who was doing a bit of daytime TV, and and I think it was just that sweet point where I could have I could have got a bit carried away with how my star was. Um, fortunately, I've always had a family that have kept me firmly grounded, but I think that experience was was one of the most important levelers I've ever had. I think it really, really kept my feet firmly rooted to the ground and it's almost impossible for them to ever leave it now. Um, and Did you know it would be when you no, signed up to do it? No, not at all. I think that was, it was, no, I was a bit naive really. You know, I went online one day, just started to, you know, I thought, well, I think I should go and do challenge it'd be quite fun I think I'd seen those posters for the round the world sailing the clipper challenge I I kind of liked the idea of that but it was quite a lot of people it felt a tiny bit commercial I wanted something that was just a bit grittier saw that Mm -hmm. people rode across the Atlantic and signed up and it was as simple as that I just thought I, I again it was in the period of literal travel I just saw it as yeah that that sounds fun let's row the Atlantic I didn't think about the nuance of emotions and that came very swiftly. Oh my goodness. You know, that first week on that ocean was the most miserable period of my life. Probably um, wow. I wanted to be somewhere less in my life. I think a lot of travels like that. I think a lot of people, if they're very honest, it's not all enjoyable and that might be the journey to get there. It might be the loneliness. It might be illness along the way. It might be the things you've seen. It might be um, the, the, the inequality that you're exposed to you know a lot of travel is not necessarily enjoyable and a lot of it let's be honest can be distinctly unenjoyable but again it's it's part of the light and shade that is so important in life you have to have ups and downs and Mm. certainly that row across the Atlantic I just I think naively thought it would just be a good boy's own tough challenge and I didn't think about how much (laughs) right cried a lot uh, on that on that ocean and what were the things that were really triggering your emotions everything kind of thinking what an idiot I was getting myself into this position in the first place because I had no one to blame you know mum who mums are always sensible and mum thought it was a ridiculous idea and and all, I just had her always in my head going well don't come crying to me you you wanted to do this you signed up you told everyone how brave and clever you were that you were going to try and row the Atlantic and and that's kind of how I saw this uh so actually a lot of the tears were why did you do this and I think a lot of your listeners who've traveled and have experienced that will recognize that emotion because you'll have that when you've got a terrible bout of diarrhea which incidentally no no travel diary would be complete without mention of bowel I haven't had absolutely or or sickness (laughs) while traveling for 25 years now and I think it's because I built I, I got it all out of my system in the first five years when I spent a lot of time <laughs> on the loo. But it is amazing how you really do build up an immunity. I, I like to think that I have the best constitution. I, I literally don't get sick now when I travel. That's a real bonus. I've got a rock solid constitution. But anyway, to, to, to avoid um, uh, disappearing off on a completely different tangent, my point <laughs> many people will have had that stuck in a room with the worst tummy ache and diarrhea known to man thinking, why do we come out to this place? It's horrid. 
And, and I had that on that boat and I just cried and just thought, why did I say, why did I tell everyone I was going to do this? Because of course, if I hadn't told everyone, uh, you know, if I wasn't in the public eye and made a big song and dance, I probably could have quietly, we could have probably quietly turned that boat around and gone back and mm. it'd been a bit embarrassing with friends, but we'd have just gone, oh yeah, we were a bit, bit stupid, weren't we? Uh, and got on with it. But this was very public and, and I couldn't get away with it. And then combine that with sleep deprivation, hunger, homesickness I really I, I suffered terrible terrible homesickness I wasn't married at that stage um, Marina who's now my wife was my girlfriend um, it was the early stages of our relationship and and actually we'd only known each other for about six months and uh, moving ahead to when we finally got across that finish line I actually proposed to her a day later I think that gave me a moment to reflect on what I had in life where I had come from, where I was going, and and I have no regrets about about um, the decisions I made after rowing across the Atlantic. So, in, in that sense, that the Atlantic really was my greatest teacher. Mm. And then from there, your list of achievements and challenges that you've completed are utterly extraordinary. Skiing across the South Pole, crossing Oman's empty quarter, and most recently climbing Mount Everest all in their own right, such incredible achievements. Is there one that you feel most proud of? Well, I think, again, a lot of those, I, I thank you for kind of bigging them up. They're not actually, do you know what? I, I kind of, more of it is the opportunity I have and seizing the opportunity. There'll be many listeners who will be going, you lucky, lucky man. <laughs> well, you know, I, I have... I have seized on those opportunities that have come my way. So I know it sounds big and clever to, to walk to the South Pole, but actually half of it is just about having the opportunity to do it. And, and I've always been acutely aware of that. So I try, I'm trying now to be a humble traveler, not one of those <laughs> when eyes is what is, it was the reference I always, I was always told when I was in, I, I did a bit of time as a reserve in the Royal Navy and people would always roll their eyes when a when I came up to you. When I was in Amman, when I was in the Falklands. And I try to not be one of those kind of travellers. But I think a lot of the travel experiences have been about where I was in my life. And Everest was a kind of really interesting time because I was a father to Ludo and Iona, who were at the time uh, six and eight. And I was sort of missing out a lot on their childhood but also I had I had kind of stopped doing some of the slightly riskier um, travel I had become a bit more a, a, a bit more um, steadfast in the in the travel that I was doing and and mm-hmm. I, I'd reached this point where it didn't feel like I was being the real me I didn't think I was being an honest father by telling them to to follow their dreams and pursue their goals and their ambitions. And yes, I wasn't doing it. So Everest kind of came at the right time. And and it contrary to what you might read in the papers, that it's now just a, a commercial venture where you chuck loads of money at it and you get hauled to the top by some underpaid, exploited Sherpas. It, it's, it's not that. And I think part of the attraction was to try and dismiss or, or validate those those cliches or, or those stereotypes of it mm. and, I, and I wanted to see for myself is it still a challenge is it true that people just chuck money and they're dragged to the top you know I, I really wanted to try and 
get to the bottom of it. I like to consider myself a storyteller. And, and as, a, as a traveler, I like, or a journeyman, which is my, my preferred sort of title, I suppose. I like to think that I go to places or meet people or experience things. And then I, I get to translate them on in the spoken word, like here on this podcast or in the books I write or in the TV shows I make. So Everest was, was almost an experiment as well as, as um, an expedition. And I think standing on the top, which was the culmination of great teamwork, the Sherpas undoubtedly are the heroes of, of, of the mountains. And mm. I wouldn't have even got near to the summit without their, their incredible friendship, support, um, teamwork, all of those things. But, and this is the point, Everest is still a great challenge for a great many people. And for me, I think it was the pinnacle of the, the experiences I've had over the years. It was almost like putting everything into play, living on that island for a year, the travel in South America, the immersion, living with people in the wilderness, uh, crossing Antarctica, all, all those things that we've touched on today, I think were my um, lessons and my apprenticeship leading up to the culmination of my lifelong dream, which was to, to stand on, on the top of Mount Everest. I really love the concept that from a learning perspective, Everest was the pinnacle of your travel diaries. I remember Sir Ranulph Fiennes on season one describing Everest in a similar way, actually. And you said it was a lifelong dream, a, a childhood fascination. I've always loved travel books. I've always loved travel literature. Mm. I've got a huge library of, of um, travel guides, travel books, new, old, and and certainly as a child, I used to, you know, I, again, I love National Geographic magazines. And I remember looking at old copies of National Geographic with those great expeditions of the 60s, 70s and 80s and, uh, and just marveling at them. And, and I suppose where, where other friends of mine idolized footballers or musicians, you know, I idolized the, the mountaineers, the climbers. And I remember reading lots of the early mountaineering books and just, just marveling at them, you know, just think in wonder, the bravery of those individuals. And I never thought that Everest would even come into my uh, world. And, and it did through a series of opportunities. Kenton Cool, veteran of 12 climbs at the time, became a friend. He, he, he always said that if, if the time was ever right and I wanted to have a go, that he would help guide me. And, uh, and, and again, it was a series, of, a series of events that led to it. And, uh, and I was able to kind of fulfill a real childhood dream. I've always wondered when you're in the midst of it and you're going through this enormous physical challenge of summiting a mountain like Everest, are you able to take in the scenery? Are you able to take in the tremendous beauty around you or is your headspace just in a completely different place? Well, this is why I think I, I say that Everest for me was the culmination of everything. I think it was the right time. I think controversially, I think I think Everest isn't for everyone. I think I think you need to be in the right headspace to climb Mount Everest. I really do. I think it's more than just a physical challenge. I think you need to you need to really know yourself. And because I really did know myself at that point of climbing, it meant that I wasn't lost in my own world of suffering and fear, which many people are, or arrogance, you know, actually, let's, let's mm. be honest about uh, Everest. I think a, a number of people uh, take on challenges like that with their own self-belief and arrogance, which you need a sense of, but you, you, you want confidence rather than arrogance. Whereas I went there with 
an honest confidence that I could do this, that I had the best team, that, that I was in the best mental place. And it meant that I could enjoy the landscape around me rather than dwelling on fear, uh, summit fever. That's this obsession people have with the goal, the destination. I went there with this very strong sense of belief that the journey was the mission that I had, if I didn't, my, my wife, it was actually part of the deal with the family. My, my wife said to me, listen, if you don't make it to the top, and, and the chances were very high that I wouldn't, and you come back, we don't want you moping around the house in a depression because you haven't been there. That, that's not the point. That's not fair for us. I think it was a very fair point that she made. She said, listen, we are, we're, we're, we are letting you go on this um, quite selfish expedition. I think there was a selfishness in it. Uh, but the deal is, if you come back, even if you haven't made it, you have to have enjoyed the experience. And, and and that was pretty profound, I think, for me, because I think a lot of people do go on these things and they just focus on that destination, the goal. If you go to Peru and you don't make it to Machu Picchu, it's a failure. Well, things happen. Places close, um, uh, weather turns. There are all sorts of things that can prevent you from reaching that goal. But if you can enjoy every moment up to that, then it's not lost, it's not wasted, it's not a failure. So I did, I could enjoy everything. And, and for me, the whole standing on the summit of Everest, of course, was a, an amazing, incredible, life-changing, unforgettable moment. But the whole thing was, was life-changing. I loved every single minute of it. I, I would, I, I, this is a strange thing, I wouldn't go back to do it again because I think I, think I kind of, I, I dodged a bullet. You know, it is a risky, uh, venture and I just don't think it would be fair on the family and yes I would go back in an instant because I have such fond happy memories that I would so in a weird kind of way I'm kind of drawn and repelled at the same time. And keeping on the same vein here from Everest your all-time favorite adventure to chapter four your all-time favorite destination so hard when you've traveled so extensively I know. Um, all-time favorite destination well it really is hard, but I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to say Cornwall. I think, I think a lot of people, when they look at travel, especially when we're looking at from the, from, from the, the, the vision of UK listeners, you look at travel meaning far away, exotic, um, overseas places. And for mm-hmm. me, I've always been a big champion of the British Isles. I love this country. I've traveled a huge amount here in the early days of my work I really did I almost touched every single point and I know every single beach every mountain every national park every remote region every visitor and Cornwall for me has always and Devon actually so I'm going to actually throw their neighbours into the fray there the southwest for me is a very happy happy place I, I went there quite a lot as a child we as a family um, return uh, every year. And I think there's something that, that there's just something that brings us closer to our island um, geography, our maritime history. There's something quintessentially British for me about the Southwest. I, I, think, I think Cornwall and Devon with its rugged coastline, its big weather, its big wild beaches, um, for me is is my favorite place one of my all-time favorites too and a regular on this podcast actually from popular destinations to the path less trodden chapter five is your hidden gem another tough one for you ben i feel like we could dedicate an entire episode to this alone 
hidden gems. There's so many, but let's let's just get one out there. Let's. I, I think I'm going to go for Ethiopia. I've been lucky enough to go to Ethiopia a few times. I, I was a child. Of, I was born in the early 70s. I was a child of the 80s when Live Aid was there. The Great Famine hit Ethiopia, and I certainly grew up with this very strong image that Ethiopia was was all starving people and barren, dried um, earth. And the first time I went, I discovered the complete opposite of that. One of the happiest, friendliest places, um, great opportunity, thriving city, amazing coffee, and and what really surprised me, so much greenery, rich forestry, uh, mm. great culture. And again, just going back to the people, I, I, I have rarely met such happy, such generous, such warm, such beautiful people as um, the Ethiopians. And, uh, and, and, and my first visit was actually to make a, a show about a, a terrible disease that affects people in sub-Saharan Africa. But aside to that, we, were, we, we spent a lot of time in Addis Ababa in the city. I'm not a huge city fan, but I actually really, really enjoyed being in Addis. And then I, I have returned a number of times, most recently last year, to go to Lalibela. Um, the, the great stone churches cut mm. the, the rock in the ground. I mean, it's a, I mean that really is one of one of the most astonishing sights I've ever seen. Oh uh, God, I'd and, love to go there, Ben. Was it uh, just unbelievable? Oh, it really. You know, I've been lucky enough to visit most of the great kind of man-made wonders of the world. And for me, Lalibela during a religious ceremony where everyone is wearing their their white robes, it actually makes me quite tearful just thinking about it now. It's it. it it is truly one of the most extraordinary, beautiful, moving, uh, photogenic things I have ever seen. Just the right light. Um, you don't need to be religious to be profoundly moved by it. So it really, oh, it really was truly amazing. But again, just back to Ethiopia as a very, very exciting travel destination, especially for families, um, is uh, is high on my list. And- is it an easy destination for travellers, would you say? Very easy, yeah. Um, I mean, getting there perhaps maybe is is a slightly more complex place. Like many regions in the world, you need to be sensible about road travel. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that road travel is one of the more dangerous aspects of travel almost everywhere in the world. And, and I, I always like to reiterate to people, they always think that um, the dangers will, will be in... in uh, with people that you might come across who might rob you or mug you. Well, I can tell you road traffic accidents are the, the thing I'm always more fearful of. But I think once, if, if, you, can, um, if you can reach uh, uh, Addis Ababa, certainly reaching the, the different regions from there is, is relatively straightforward. There's good accommodation. I think the food is very exciting. A lot of your listeners who've been there may be making a retching uh, noise. There's called um and forgive me if uh, if i've got the wrong pronunciation but in injara bread which a lot of people describe as carpet liner it's it's sort of a quite it's got that texture it's quite spongy it's got holes in it it's kind of bitter very very bitter and i personally love the stuff i actually proactively go to ethiopian restaurants in london and else in new york when i'm there because i find the food tibs and 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 the the variety that you have very exciting and the people again i just can't reiterate enough how 
amazing and beautiful. I, I don't like to use this thing beauty we, we, very often, but both the men and the women in Ethiopia just take your breath away because they are so strikingly beautiful. And I've had so many fascinating conversations and, and, and again, not wanting to use brushstrokes, but I think a lot of Ethiopians are frustrated that a lot of people still have these cliches of that period of great famine, which was terrible for Ethiopia. And, and I don't doubt there is still famine in different regions, but it doesn't mark a whole region um, uh, forever and ever. It's, it's much yeah. more than just the sum of those parts. Well, I'm sold, Ben. That's firmly added to my travel wish list. It sounds just so wonderful. In contrast, then, chapter six is your worst travel experience. For me, travel is about what you take away from it. Mm -hmm. And I've been to places that are hard. I've been to places that are wretched. I've been to places that aren't really me. So I've been to Ayanapa. I don't think Ayanapa uh, is my kind of place. You know, I, I ended up for one reason or another in a little kind of bed and breakfast between two super clubs. And it really was not my favorite place. But would I go back? <laughs> um, yes, if, if circumstances took me there. And, but the same could be said for somewhere like um, Haiti. I, I went there shortly after the, the devastating earthquake, and, and the only way to describe it is wretched. It was, it was one of the hardest places I've ever been. There's rarely a place where I almost felt overwhelmed with how on earth they were ever going to rebuild. And naturally, there was quite a lot of anger. There was, there was a lot of... Um, th there was a lot of frustration there. It wasn't the warmest of, of places, but I totally understand why that would be the general sentiment. Mm -hmm. Again, would, would I race back there? I think probably not, mainly because it's inappropriate, but I also, to, to say inappropriate, would, would be detrimental to those who rely on tourism, who want people like me um, to, to visit places like uh, Port-au-Prince and, and Haiti. So I, th I think the general answer to this is there are places that weren't really me. There were places that I felt might be inappropriate to visit, and there were places that left me genuinely sad. And, and, and Haiti really was one of those, because mm. rarely have I felt beaten by... A place in, in that I couldn't see quite how they were ever going to pick themselves up again. But that is also a great attraction for me. And, and, and actually, I would love to return and see whether my own sentiments were correct. And, and I'd like to think that the islanders and the island itself has, has proved me wrong and, and actually has um, started to rebuild a lot of those um, earthquake ravaged, disease ridden places. Mm, Haiti as a country has had such a horrendous time, hasn't it? But as you see, I, I just hope it can prove us all wrong and you know slowly start to recover. Continuing with that theme of looking forward, chapter seven is your next big adventure. Are you always looking for a new challenge? I think there'll always be something. I'm, I'm kind of a, I, I like to be driven by a carrot and mm -hmm. a carrot is, can be a big challenge. It might just be a place I want to go. It might be something I would like to achieve. And and, and travel is my favorite thing in the world. Like I say, it's, it's my oxygen. So I, 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 I get very excited by travel. And travel is, for me, 
leaving my own house. So it's something that we have largely been deprived of for the last three, four months. Um, and, and I can't wait to just leave my house and go yeah. and explore a little bit beginning in this country. Um, but of the bigger challenges, Everest was certainly a pinnacle, but it won't be the last. And, and I think a notion of traveling and journeying around the world using self-propulsion somehow, whether that's walking, running, cycling, sailing, um, ballooning, whatever it is, I think this notion of actually journeying all the way around the world in a green means um, is very exciting. Mm. And I'd be surprised if at some stage an opportunity didn't arise. I don't think it's going to be right now. I, I kind of owe it to my children. They're, they're reaching an age where they really need me around and I want to be around. But I think as soon as they fledge the, the nest, when they head off to university or whatever they choose to do after their schooling, I think will be the moment uh, when I might try something like that. And uh, that always excited me, uh, this notion that the world is a giant place, but actually we can do it on, with our own legs or arms or using the weather around us. Hmm, what a fantastic idea. You call yourself a, a journeyman, a storyteller, and I think that circumnavigating the world with zero emissions is a really important story that needs to be told. So I'm looking forward to, to that happening one day. So now we're on to the final chapter of your travel diaries, Ben, chapter eight, which is the destination at the top of your travel bucket list. Blimey, I mean, that really is a, a difficult one. Believe it or not, Holly, there are loads and loads of places I have still never been. There are lots of things I haven't experienced. There are people I haven't met. Uh, so I actually have quite a lot of ultimate bucket list experiences. I've never been to China, anywhere in China. And the Great Wall, wow, I'd love to see that. I'd love to to the whole Great Wall of China. Um, I've never been to the North Pole. I'd quite like to do that with the children. So my bucket list is quite, is, 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 there's a few places on it. So I'm answering now, by the way, I'm not kind of just doing a politician's answer, putting it off, but multiple ones. I, I think for me, doing stuff with my own children, introducing them to different regions of the world, different lifestyles, I think, uh, I think it's really important to them, for, for me to, to show them how privileged they are. You know, I, I'm acutely aware of, of the life that they have been born into, which is not one that the majority of the world is. And I want them to be as rounded as possible. Mm -hmm. So I want to expose them to how the world really is. And, and I think we'll do that through a series of immersions, a series of visits, a series of adventures, just to remind them um, to keep their feet firmly on the ground, never take take themselves, their health, the food they have on their plate for granted. And I think to do that takes a series of, of little expeditions. So in all seriousness, I'd love to go to the South Pole with them. Uh, and we will do that without doubt at some stage. If it, I say that, that's if uh, the ice allows it, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, may, may preclude that. Maybe they will never be able to get there. Maybe we'll have to paddle there. Um, but I would like to, I think my bucket list is now about making them as rounded as possible and giving them opportunities that will build their character, their, their personalities, and hopefully their selflessness. Because I, I don't, I, I, I don't like selfish people. And I think if, if you aren't open-minded enough, you're in danger of becoming selfish. I think the, the key to being selfless is to travel. Mm, 
What a great way to end. Thank you so much, Ben. Those were your incredible travel diaries. It's been so wonderful to get to hear them. It's been a great opportunity to tell you about and show off about all of my travels. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to Ben Fogel for the first or the second time. Like Simon Reeve last week, I'm sure you'll agree that Ben should probably come back and join us for another episode sometime. He's just been to such remote, unusual parts of the world and I really love hearing him talk about travel. Next week is our big season finale. Dame Joanna Lumley joins us for the whole hour and let me tell you, this is going to be one of your favourites. I know it. So I'll see you next week, everyone. Take care. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.